Welcome to The Cauldron, a podcast hosted by Ed Bolton Greer, the creator of Ravensvale. In each episode, Ed will have free-flowing conversations about horror, life, culture, and personal growth. Expect to hear from storytellers, authors, horror experts, life gurus, thought leaders, and influencers. The Cauldron is a place where concoctions of a lot of ideas are brewed down to potions that are sometimes important and useful, sometimes eccentric and bizarre, but always just what you need. The Cauldron podcast may contain explicit language and thematic elements not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Well, hey there, family. Welcome back to another episode of the Ravensvale Cauldron. I'm your host, Ed Bolden Greer, and this is my co-host, Jacob Garner, a.k.a. Frady Cat. Hello, hello, everyone. Well, Jacob, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic. Well, I'm glad you made it back safe and sound. Uh, For the listeners that don't know, you kind of jumped ship last week and went cruising around the Bahamas. Oh, yeah. How was it, man? Man, it was outstanding. I went with my best friend, my twin, Zach, and it was just a lot of sun, a lot of sand, some stiff drinks, wonderful time. Sounds like a lot of trouble. Oh, yeah. You can always get into that. Did you uh, find any any spooky things when you were on the ship? <laughs> no. The spookiest thing that I saw was the bottom of my beer can. Uh, that was about it. Well, I didn't want to tell you before you left, but you do know that most cruise ships are hella haunted, right? Haunted? Yeah. You know, people die on cruise ships and then they're stuck there. Like falling off, right? No, heart attacks and, you know, people die. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of old people on the ship. Not yeah. just old people. Oh, I mean. There have been murders on cruise ships. People die of different things, overdoses, all kinds of things. You know, <laughs> that's unsettling to know. But something I did find really funny was, uh, so me and my twin, we looked pretty identical. And we were wearing similar clothes the entire time. And for the listeners who haven't been on a cruise ship before, the hallways are incredibly long, you know? And narrow. And narrow. So there'd be a lot of times, like late at night, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, me and Zach would walk side by side down the hallways. And when we would turn a corner to start walking down a long hallway, there'd usually be like one person a good distance away. And they would like, they would stop in their tracks and just stare like they were looking at the twins and the shining. Shining. <laughs> <laughs> well, family, in the next two episodes, Jacob and I will be looking at the history and happenings of the infamous witch hunts that swept across Europe and the American colonies from the 15th to the 18th century. These reprehensible killings were fueled by fear, superstition, and religious extremism. Quick, Dr. B, before we get started, did you end up watching the Super Bowl? I did not. I didn't get to watch the game this year due to prior work commitments, but I did watch the halftime show uh, the day after on YouTube, and it was pretty good. Dude, yeah, I loved it. Usher did a great job. I'm not the biggest Usher fan, but he did a fantastic job for about 14 minutes, which is a, a lot of energy. Oh, yeah. He dazzled the audience with his performance. Uh, and you know what? He just chose all the, all the right songs from his discography. Um, he's just, got a long one, too. Like, yeah. he, he, I forgot how many hits Usher had. Absolutely. I, and the fact that 
he had Little John, Ludacris, yep. Her, and Will I Am on there. They they're some of my favorites. Did you see that part? I'm sure you did. Where Usher was on roller skates and he slid between Will I Am's legs. Yep. <laughs> I was like, dude, what is happening? That's awesome. You know, for me, it was a the perfect blend of nostalgia and entertainment, and and it had such like spectacle about it. Oh man, yeah. You know, um. And of course, as I predicted, oh my. the Chiefs won. Dude, yeah, okay, get it over with. I know, <laughs> I know. But I think we already knew they were going to win. <laughs> as I said during our last show together, and I got to kind of edit this a little bit, the San Francisco 49ers versus the Kansas City Chiefs, they've played each other now. 16 times, Jacob, mm. since 1971, with, of course, the Chiefs winning now nine games mm. of that 16, including, of course, Super Bowl 54 and Super Bowl 58. It's unbelievable. You know, my mother busted out like a 37-year-old Joe Montana jersey for good luck. She actually wore it. Uh, to a Super Bowl that she attended back in the like mid '80s or something like that, it was not lucky enough, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, she might want to rethink her lucky charms. <laughs> it was still a great game. I, I had a fantastic time, and you know, shout out to the Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes. Not only is he just incredibly talented, he was very gracious in his victory. Andy Reid's cool, and more importantly, uh, shout out to the Swifty fans. Her boyfriend won. So, <laughs> <laughs> before we dive in. Uh, to our episode today, how about a couple of uh, would-you-rather questions, Jacob? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so I'll go first. Jacob, mm-hmm. would you rather All right. live without internet for a year or live without your phone for a year? Hmm. Can I have a landline telephone? No. So no phone at all? Yeah. Hmm. I think this is actually a lot easier of a choice for me, mainly because uh, when me and Zach went to the Bahamas, we turned our phones off and kept them in the stateroom for eight days, and I barely noticed. You just keep rubbing the fact that you went to the Bahamas and didn't take me in. Did I mention that I went to the Bahamas last year? You mentioned something about it. (laughs) Yeah, so I think no phone, but I I need the internet, you know. So you're going to quit working with us if this happens? I'll just live in a clinic. Oh, that's fine. (laughs) I can live with that. Okay. Um... All right, all right, all right. I got one for you. I got one for you. Okay. You ready? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Would you rather be able to see 10 minutes into your own future or 10 minutes into the future of anyone but yourself? Hmm. So let me clarify here. I could, it's an ongoing talent. Yes. And, or gift. And I would be able to see 10 minutes into anybody's future, not anybody. just one person. Okay. Anybody. I would have to go with seeing 10 minutes into the future of anybody. Really? Yeah. Not yourself? Not myself. Okay. I, I, I originally thought I would like to see mm-hmm. it about myself, but I, I really, I think that I'd probably use it too much. Yeah. I know uh, I would. And, and I think that it would become like not only isolating, but also terrifying if I had that gift for myself. Yeah. Cause like, what if you're just like getting ready to eat a breakfast burrito and you're like, I wonder if this is going to give me heartburn. And then you look 10 minutes into the future. It's like, I'm about to die. Yeah. And I'm <laughs> not going to eat that burrito. And 
I love breakfast burritos. Uh, but no, I think it would be a, a useful skill to be able to look 10 minutes into the future of somebody else, you know, and be able to give them, you know, some feedback maybe that might keep them safe. <laughs> Every time Dr. B tells him I'm about to fuck up, he's right. I don't know how he always does it. Maybe I have that gift. <laughs> <laughs> I think for with you, that gift is more than 10 minutes. <clears throat> so what about all this rain, Jacob? I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Oh, I mean, the gloom. I don't know if uh, I don't know if we brought it up yet, but while I was in the Bahamas, it was really. Oh, oh you went to the Bahamas. I went to the Bahamas, and it was very sunny <laughs> the entire time. And as I got closer and closer to the you know continental United States, it kept getting colder and cloudier. And when I landed at McGee Tyson back in Knoxville, it was raining, and it has yet to really stop raining since I got back. Well, all I got to say is I'm tired of the cold, and Me too. if we have very many more days of rain, which we're forecasted to have another week of rain, I may just crawl in bed and and stay there until it's just until over. it's over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do not blame. Me. Although we have been told that that we might get an inch of snow tomorrow. Tomorrow? Yeah. Oh my god. Well, hey, if if it does snow, you and Jared bought me that really nice snow shovel. So I'm ready for it. Well, I mean that keeps you from getting out there with a weight plate trying to break up the ice. <laughs> well, folks, February is Black History Month. A time to celebrate the achievements and contributions of African Americans in the United States. It's also a time to reflect on the struggles and challenges they've faced and continue to face in the pursuit of justice and equality. Black History Month is a time to reflect on the ongoing struggle for racial justice and equality and to celebrate the diversity and resilience of the black community. Black History Month is also a time to focus on diversity, inclusion, and human rights. It is an opportunity to learn from the past, honor the present, and envision the future. It is a chance to recognize the role of black people in shaping this nation's history, culture, and identity. Black History Month is more than just a month. It's actually a movement. A movement that seeks to honor the legacy of those who came before us, empower those who are with us, and inspire those who will come after us. A movement that reminds us that Black History Month is American history and that Black Lives Matter. So join us in celebrating Black History Month by educating yourself and others about the history and achievements of African American people, amplifying their voices and stories, and advocating for their rights and causes. Together, we can create a more inclusive and equitable future for everyone. Well, Jacob, I guess we need to get this show on the road. All right. The year is 1692, and we're in the small Puritan community of Salem Village. A wave of hysteria is about to sweep through this quiet little settlement. Let's start at the beginning. The concept of witchcraft has been around for centuries. Witchcraft is a term that has different meanings and connotations depending on the historical, cultural, and religious context that you're discussing. But generally, it refers to the use of invocation of supernatural powers to influence nature or events, often involving sorcery or magic. Witchcraft has been rooted in folklore and religious beliefs since the beginning of time, but it was during the late Middle Ages that accusations of witchcraft associated with devil worship cannibalism and black magic began to rise, leading to the infamous witch hunts. In Europe, the witch hunts were largely driven by religious conflict and social upheaval. 
The Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation created a climate of religious tension and accusations of witchcraft became a tool for rooting out heresy. Across the Atlantic and the American colonies, the most famous witch hunts took place in Salem in 1692. The Salem Witch Trials resulted in the execution of 20 people and the imprisonment of many more. The term American witch hunts often refer to two main periods of intense scrutiny and persecution in American history. To properly discuss the American witch hunts, we need to divide our study into two distinct time frames. The colonial witch hunts that happened between 1647 and 1662, and the Salem witch trials that took place between 1692 and 1693. In the American colonies, witchcraft was considered a serious crime, and those convicted were often sentenced to death. The most common method of execution was hanging. Notably, no witch was burned at the stake in North America. According to historians, people accused of witchcraft in the American colonies were hanged, not burned, in accordance with English law. The myth of burning witches at the stake in Salem may have been inspired by European witch trials, where execution by fire was most common. As a result, the claim that witches were burned at the stake in America, unlike Europe, is undoubtedly false. So, Jacob, with all your gallivanting around the Bahamas, without me, (laughs) did you find any time to do your homework? Actually, indeed I did, and fun fact, I actually had quite a bit of information about American witch history, mainly because of our very first episode, The Bell Witch. Uh So, I am ready to go, locked and loaded. Well, let them have it. Awesome. Sup, witches? So, (laughs) (laughs) witches uh, were persecuted in America during the colonial period particularly in the late 17th century. The most well-known instance of witch persecution that we're going to be covering today happened in America in Salem. And those occurred around the year 1692. That's when we first see documented cases of it. There probably were some instances prior to 1692 that just got lost to history. But during this time, many people, mostly women, majority being women, were accused of witchcraft based on superstition, fear, and the very fervent religious beliefs in the colonies at the time. In early America, an alleged witch would often be described based on the prevailing beliefs and stereotypes of the time carried over from Europe. While specific descriptions could vary from person to person, especially depending on the individual's accusers' perceptions and biases, there were some common characteristics attributed to witches during this period. First one, the elephant in the room, was the gender, okay? Most alleged witches were women, to the surprise of absolutely nobody. In an extremely patriarchal society, which early America most definitely was, women were often viewed with a serious amount of suspicion and seen as more susceptible to the temptation by the devil. However, there were also some cases of men being accused of witchcraft, though very, very like sparse and less frequent. I did choose one male that was accused of witchcraft. He was actually accused of being a wizard, but we'll touch on that later. But the age of witches are often depicted as like a decrepit old woman, you know? Typically, back then, an older woman was somebody that was past their childbearing years. Referred to as a crone. A crone, yeah. Uh, Just to interject here, um, I think that in the Salem witch hunts, there were 20 individuals that were were murdered, and I think four or five of them were male. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So this age group of women past childbearing years was viewed as more likely to be associated with the dark arts and sorcery. However, there were instances, as Dr. B has also done his research and has found, of younger women and even children being accused of witchcraft as well, which is just so sad when you really think about it. What does your typical witch look like? Not the classic Wizard of Oz, Wicked Witch of the West, or whatever her name was. All green with a wart and a pointy hat. Now, the wart's actually something that comes up quite often, but no green skin. Um, they were described as having physical abnormalities or deformities, such as warts, moles, birthmarks, interestingly enough. Or, unfortunately, if they were just very unlucky and they had some missing limb, maybe from an accident in childhood or as an adult, that was also considered a reason to be concerned. The birthmark thing I thought was pretty interesting. So there was an interesting account that I had found where it was alleged that if a woman had a visible birthmark, now we're not talking about one that's just kind of like, you know, on their side or maybe on their stomach, but if they had a birthmark on their face or on their hands, someplace where they couldn't actually hide it, they were considered as being touched by the devil. By the devil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things that they would do during that time, Jacob, is that they would try to find the the mark. The devil left a mark, and birthmarks were part of that. Uh, and they would do a test where they would take a long hat pin and pierce it into the skin. And if the accused individual didn't have sensation there, then it was marked as a, a devil's mark, and they were then guilty of witchcraft. Yeah, actually, um, I'm glad you brought it up because pricking, which is what it was called, was also known as trial by pins. So it was a supposed physical indicator of a pact with the devil, okay? They actually believed back then that these birthmarks, moles, or what have you were insensible to pain and did not bleed when pricked. That's actually what they believed, right? Obviously, what we understand about anatomy, they do bleed. They, they do, do feel sensation, yeah. right? The areas of the body most commonly targeted for pricking were the moles and birthmarks, like we talked about, or areas like the armpits or genitals, interestingly enough. However, uh, the procedure was inherently flawed, as anybody could be forced to confess to being a witch under the threat of torture. Yeah, if you're sticking a needle in my genitals and asking me to confess, I just might. Oh, yeah. Me too. To get you to stop. And sometimes they wouldn't even have to start doing it either. Like actually pricking you, just holding it in front of you. You know, okay, yeah, I'm a witch. Just don't stab me with that stupid thing. But to go back to the description of witches, um, I found the description of witches relevant only to the Americas. Now, as we touch in the next episode about European witches, the descriptions are a little bit different, but this is purely just for what they used as indicators here in the early colonies. The behavior that witches were thought to exhibit was peculiar or suspicious by the cultural norms of the time. Uh, the so if you were shy and, and, and a loner, yep. um, if you had... Uh, seizure disorder, mm -hmm. all of that would amount to peculiar behavior. Something similar to the birthmarks or moles that most people don't even have any control over. Most witches were described as antisocial, loners, usually widows, 
typically speaking. Crazy. Or, interestingly enough, if you were a little bit too outgoing and eccentric, they considered that, oh, she's got that devil energy about her, right? Um, one thing that uh, was common, in the United States at least, was common is if you had red hair. <laughs> it's so stupid. <laughs> Uh, another thing that could get you pegged as a witch was having strange habits. So if I was just a dude working out in a field with my animals or I was in town selling something at the market, if I observed any older woman talking to an animal like a cat or like a dog or a cow that they're maintaining, which is common, everybody does that. They're like, oh, she can talk to that animal. That animal's talking to her. Is that somebody that she polymorphed into an animal, one of her victims, even something as simple as muttering to yourself. We're not talking about standing on the street corner and yelling a loud conversation that you're having back and forth with your own mind. Just something as simple as muttering underneath your breath, right, was seen as something like, is she saying some sort of incantation? Is she cursing me or something? It was wild. Or especially pre-modern medical science that we have now, practicing any sort of herbal medicine treatment was considered, oh, she's really in tune with nature. She's casting spells on these herbs and salves that she's using to heal herself. That can't be natural, right? Yeah. Just in contrast to that, they went to the crones or, or the witches uh, for those remedies when when they needed healing. So they went to them secretively. There's not a lot of documentation, but it is believed that one of the things that started the entire witch hunts in America was someone died and had taken one of those remedies. Yeah. And one of the interesting things that I found about what led to the basis of an accusation were people with an axe to grind, people that felt like they had been wrong. So I hadn't found any evidence of this, and I doubt anybody would admit to it because it would implicate themselves too. But I wonder how many people during this time period sought out an herbal remedy from a witch in secret. It didn't work. Their loved one, child, whoever died, and then they were pissed and then said, she's a witch. Or, or they actually, I mean, it was a hysterical kind of time. Oh, man. You know, and so if your loved one died after taking a potion or a, a herbal blend from one of the granny witches in the area or or just anyone who worked with herbs, it was easy to blame them for it. Yeah. Oh, they would have been healed. She poisoned or cursed them. Right. They weren't that sick. No. So another description is the social status. So while witches could come from any social class, it wasn't just relegated purely to one group or the other. They were often portrayed as marginalized or socially isolated individuals. So widows, unmarried women, or those who lived on the fringes of society were particularly vulnerable to accusations. Also, one of the, the classes of women that were often targeted in the European hunts, but more over here in the United States, are people who had influential husbands. Mm, yes. And, and people were trying to take them down, so to speak. Yeah. It, it was the lowest form of mudslinging that you could possibly use is to accuse a rival of yours wife of being a witch or their daughter of being a witch. Yep. 
So the low-hanging fruit for a lot of these accusations against alleged witches were that these women were practicing heretical or non-Christian beliefs. They might be accused of attending some shady little secret meetings of some sort or performing rituals that were seen as blasphemous or sacrilegious out in their fields or in their homes. Back then, for those who don't know, uh, colonial America was extremely religious, extremely religious. And if you had somebody that was like a widow or a loner and they weren't attending church in these small communities where everybody did it, well, they have to be up to witchcraft and devil worship. Right. I mean, back then we didn't necessarily permit people to grieve in their own way. Exactly. So if you had a widow who was married previously to a sailor, deep sea travel was extremely dangerous, you know, and deaths were very common. Your husband dies. You're now left by yourself. You want to be alone. And then you don't go to church. You don't attend any of the community functions. Oh, so she's keeping company with, with the, the devil. devil. Exactly. It was really, really sad. Could you imagine grieving the death of your husband and then some jackass is just like, well, she's a little sad, but she's probably being cheered up by the devil and his cronies, right? So messed up. And then the last accusation that was really associated with witches and would get people really fired up to start throwing the stones, hurling the insults, was that these people, these women, had supernatural powers of some sort. They didn't believe that the witches themselves, as humans, had powers at birth. They believed that they had to have made a deal or a pact with the devil to then gain these powers. They actually believed that these loners, widows, these people out in the middle of nowhere, they had the ability to curse people with misfortune, illness, the whole shebangabang, or even control the weather, which is really sad because there were a couple accounts that I found where a crop would fail. And I mean, there's nothing you can do to control a crop failing. It could be lack of water. It could be too much water, et cetera, et cetera. And they needed somebody to blame. So they would point their finger towards one of these people accused of being a witch and said, it's clearly her fault. And then they would brutally, you know, murder her. It was really, really sad. Also, some of the other cool, uh, well, I guess cool is, well, I think they're cool. Some of the alleged cool superpowers that some of these witches had, the ability to shapeshift into black cats, which is something that was pretty common in the research I found. I think it's also why we still have um, the idea that black cats are unlucky, you know, um, they believe that if they were on a witch hunt or something like that and they couldn't find the woman, if they saw a black cat, they would go, there she is. And they would then, I found an account where they put a black cat on trial as the woman, right? And then subsequently executed the cat. What they didn't know is that it wasn't just black cats they could I know, right? It could be anything. I, I just sit there and I think to myself, this is a dark thought. If I actually was a practicing witch back then, I would have like 20 cats. So when I had to leave town, they would be all distracted by trying to capture the cats and I, I could get away. <laughs> that's, that's just kind of what I, I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> but I had a... Exit plan. Yeah, exactly. I had a, a question when I first started doing this research... And it was, why did early Americans care so much about witches in their communities? So 
It was clearly a combination of the religious, social, and cultural factors at the time. Like we said, overwhelmingly, the majority of people that lived in the colonies were Christian and pretty devout Christians at that. They were influenced heavily by the Puritanism of their faith as they fled mainland Europe to then come to the colonies to practice relatively unopposed. And in New England, Puritan theology emphasized the existence of evil forces, including the devil and his agents, i.e. witches, who were believed to actively seek the destruction of the righteous. This fear of witchcraft stemmed from biblical passages condemning sorcery and witchcraft. And I actually did find two that specifically call it out in the Bible. So in Exodus twenty-two eighteen, quote, thou shall not suffer a witch to live, end quote, and Leviticus twenty twenty-seven, quote, any man or woman who consults the spirits of the dead shall be stoned to death. Any of you that do this are responsible for your own death, end quote. So a lot of these early colonists, they had the other baked into their communities, a scapegoat, if you will, somebody to blame. And not only did they have their own personal beliefs backing up their idea that what they were doing wasn't cruel, wasn't wrong or bad, it was in fact righteous and backed by their own beliefs. That's why they had this really strong conviction to root it out, right? Because if you can remove a member of your community that you believe is causing misfortune, you're doing a net positive for everybody, no matter how cruel you were to the person that was completely innocent. That's true. We Going back to the Puritans, between 1629 and 1643, approximately 21,000 Puritans immigrated to the New England area. Really? Wow. Yeah. It was the majority of the people that were in that area. So they were were definitely all religiously based. Oh, yeah. And it should be noted, too, not only was there a huge religious component to their beliefs, but traveling all the way from mainland Europe was an arduous trip. But there was this overhanging guillotine over everybody's head of the unknown. The early American colonies were characterized mainly by harsh living, disease, and natural disasters. So in times of hardship, people sought explanations for the unexplainable often turning to supernatural causes. And witchcraft provided a very convenient explanation for misfortunes. Like I said, with crop failures, livestock deaths, and outbreaks of illness, which was going to happen anyway in the colonies, but they couldn't understand, well, you know, we're not planting the crops in the right area. This type of cattle or whatever can't live off of this vegetation here in the new world. Oh, there's an outbreak of influenza or something like that, measles. They didn't understand to isolate, to treat it with modern medicine they didn't have access to. So because they didn't know what was causing it, they then hoisted the blame onto a member of their community. So accusations of witchcraft offered a very, very easy way to assign blame and regain a sense of control in a chaotic and unpredictable environment that the colonists found themselves in. And that doesn't justify what they did, but it does make sense, don't you think? There has to be a reason why this is happening to us. Yeah, um, I want to go back just a little bit when we were talking about how Puritans took the verse, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of debate that the original translation 
of the word witch actually meant witch. Really? Yeah. I, I'm not going to go deep into it in this episode, mm. but in next episode, we'll flesh out the true meaning. But um, it was probably the number one cause of the witch hunts. Hmm. I'm looking forward to that. Witch hunts in colonial America also provided a means for maintaining social order and reinforcing existing power structures found in the church, okay? Accusing somebody of witchcraft could be a way to settle personal grievances, eliminate rivals, or target marginalized individuals who didn't conform to societal norms at the time. But by rooting out perceived threats to their community, authorities can demonstrate their vigilance and authority, thus reinforcing their own positions of power. So let's say that you're a community leader. Uh, I'm not sure if they had sheriffs back then, but if you had a sheriff or like a mayor of your town or something. If your colony, your town is having a rough time and they're going, why do we have Mayor Jacob? He doesn't seem to know anything going on. In order to regain the control and to stamp down any sort of dissent, I would then pick somebody, say it's their fault, but I'm going to fix the problem. I'm going to kill them to demonstrate to everybody in the community that I can and will do it. And then that would keep everybody calm. They say, well, he's doing something. He just killed a witch, so hopefully he does well. And then also, it planted a seed in a lot of the colonists' minds that they better be on their P's and Q's. They better show up to church every Sunday. They better give their tithe because if you don't— Don't look shady. uh Uh-uh. You better not talk to your cat because if things get rough— your head may be the next one in the news. I'm going to tell you, I would have been accused of witchcraft right off the bat because, well, our cat is no longer with us, but I talk to that cat every day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. People talk to their animals all the time. So, oof. Uh, in some cases, accusations of witchcraft were linked to economic tensions or disputes over property. So, kind of in the Bell Witch uh, episode, yeah. we talked about how maybe it was somebody accusing somebody else of being a witch to try to get some land, or maybe they were wronged in a land deal. It was a little murky on yeah, those if details. I want what you got, I'll just accuse you of being a witch. Exactly. I'll just walk into town and say, by the way, I saw Ed talking to his cat that I think was a person at one point. You guys should probably do something. They execute you, and then now your plot of land, your house, all of the crops and stuff you have goes somewhere, right? And... The belief in witchcraft was not unique to early America. We'll talk about it more in the next episode, but it was a widespread phenomenon in Europe. So, with the majority of these colonists being European, they carried those beliefs with them. Witchcraft has existed all over the world, in every culture, in every continent. One thing that's very, very sad was that because a majority of these colonists were Christian, as they interacted with the indigenous people that had their own cultural and religious beliefs that were different from their own, instead of acknowledging, wow, these people just think the world came about a different way or works a different way from us, they went, "Mm, it's not Christianity, it's probably witchcraft. Yep. Everything you're doing is witchcraft. So with all of those factors built into what was going on in colonial America, it really, really was a powder keg ready to explode. It just needed a spark. Yeah. I I can only imagine that it was a very stressful time for women. Oh, my God. And that just taking a walk on the street, you had to watch everything that you were doing. Oh, yeah. I I mean, imagine, imagine you're, you know, a 33, 35-year-old woman. You're walking home. 
probably getting to sunset or something like that. Some drunk walks up to you, tries to get a little handsy. Come on, mama, let's go this way. Let's go that. Hey, you want some fun? And then, you know, culturally, that woman would say, some pure, I'm not going to do that. Not a whore, something like that. Then that guy could just turn around and say, all right, well, thanks for nothing. And then immediately go back to the tavern or bar he was in and say, yeah, you know, uh, Abigail, yeah, I saw her riding on a broomstick. I tried paying her a compliment, and then she casted a spell at me and then flew away. So we should probably go do something about that. Hey, Jacob, I want to interrupt for just a second and highlight that when you were talking about the age of 30, uh, you were putting that into modern-day time frame references and just point out that the life expectancy of somebody who came to the Americas during the 1600s was about 30 years old. Mm. Not that there weren't older people who had come over as well, but the life expectancy was about 30. And a lot of that had to do with unstable food supply, disease, women giving birth was the most dangerous thing a woman could do back then. So just to highlight that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I thought it'd be pretty awesome uh, to go over kind of like the step-by-step process of what a witch trial looked like in Salem back then. Yeah. So uh, Gross K. David compiled a bunch of documents of the Salem witch trials that I was able to find. He published them in 2018. And typically speaking, this is how a witch trial played out. First things first, you got to accuse somebody. has to be an accusation of some sort. So witch hunts often began with Actual and literal rumors. That was it. Just a rumor that somebody was practicing witchcraft or was a witch. And it was usually made by individuals within the community that had some sort of social standing. But in some cases, it could be the town drunk for all it mattered. Just somebody, usually a man, accusing a woman of being a witch. They could arise from a variety of different backgrounds or sources, including, and most commonly, personal vendettas jealousy, suspicions of individuals who, again, were kind of not acting in line of the status quo of what everybody else was doing at the time. So the accusations could arise from a variety of sources. Most commonly, it came from personal vendettas, jealousy, or a suspicion of individuals who, again, weren't falling in line with what everybody else was doing in their colony at the time. There was, and I'm doing this for the listeners who can't see, air quotes, an investigation, okay, of the accusation. So once the local authorities, such as the magistrates or more than likely church officials, they would initiate an investigation, okay? This might involve questioning the accused. Really, it was them shouting at them. They already, when they started a witch trial, they already believed that you were guilty. It was actually on you to prove that you weren't a witch. But these people were really, really determined. When the community got together to say this person was a witch, it was basically a death sentence at that point. Uh, They would search for physical evidence of witchcraft, such as a spell book or magical objects. In almost every account that I found, there wasn't like... A Necronomicon laying in somebody's cottage somewhere. No, it's generally a diary. Yeah. With recipes. Exactly. Uh, Herbal recipes, right? Maybe something that their mother or grandmother, somebody in their family taught them, hey, if you cut yourself out in the woods, look for this plant and dab it on there. It'll stop the bleeding, coagulate the blood. When they would initiate a witch hunt and they would find those diaries, right? 
they would say, look at this. This is a spell for witchcraft. Or something that I thought was really sad, uh, in a diary, anybody that keeps one probably does this as well. They write their dreams in it. Mm-hmm. And they would say, look at this. She's communing with spirits or she's claiming to do these supernatural things like visions. flying and yeah, receiving visions and all this other stuff. And they would just conveniently leave out the part where she would say, and then I woke up, you know, or something yeah. like that. Also, there was a tendency that if, let's say, a girl had a crush on someone and they didn't name that someone, they would just say he or whoever, they uh, would attribute that to her love of the devil. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was one uh, instance that I found, not in Salem, but somewhere else in colonial America, where a woman who must have had a fantastic personality, but had a wart on her face. She was a little bit older than some of the younger women that would get married and have children. So she was 20. Yeah, She was an ancient 25. And maybe she got married or started a relationship, a courtship, with somebody that was perceived out of her league. Then the community would say, oh, she casted a love spell. Yep. And that would be enough of an accusation. number nine. (laughs) The, the next stage in the process of the witch, witch hunt, yeah. the witch trial, was the arrest. Yeah. And the arrest, it was a huge spectacle. Usually there would be a mob gathered. They would take the local authorities, church officials, up to the accuser's cottage, house, homestead, whatever. And they would immediately arrest her and start shaming her. Yeah. I mean— It was—, it was the most embarrassing way they could possibly do it. They planned the most embarrassing way they could do it. Oh, yeah. And just hurling insults and mob mentality would take over. They would start pulling at the hair, ripping the clothes, just humiliating this poor woman. Uh, The next phase of this, again, quote, investigation would be a weird sort of way of determining guilt. Now, was it a trial? Was it where one person stands up and says, the prosecution alleges that you've been (laughs) flying around on a broom. What say you in your defense? And then the person goes, I've never flown on a broom. Nope, it was not that. They used some absolutely barbaric and by definition, just torturous methods to determine a woman's guilt in these cases. We already talked about pricking, so I'm not going to go over that. But another one that was really, really common was dunking. Okay, Dunking, also known as Ducking or swimming involved tying the accused person's hands and feet together and submerging them in water, often a body of water like a pond or a river somewhere nearby. And if the accused floated, it was believed to be evidence of witchcraft, as it was thought that witches were repelled by holy water or had made a pact with evil spirits that rendered them buoyant. (laughs) So I, I really hate to break this to everybody who's ever just floated around in a pool on their back. You're a witch. It's that easy. If the accused person sank, they were considered innocent. But, but they also drowned. Exactly. They would drown in the process, which when I read this, I thought to myself, what did the people do that threw this poor woman into the pond and then she drowned? Did they go, ooh, whoops, she was innocent? Or did they go, well, now we know, and yeah. then just went about their day? Probably now we know. Their souls in heaven. Oh, gosh. That is so sad. It was just a cruel and dangerous practice that often resulted in the death of innocent individuals. I couldn't imagine being some poor woman, maybe just 
sitting by yourself, reading your Bible, more than likely, because they were all religious, you know, reading your Bible next to the hearth after you ate some dinner. Next thing you know, a mob appears outside of your house. They drag you out. They're humiliating you. Then they tie your hands and feet together. Then they throw you in a pond. And before you can really even wrap your head around what's going on, you drown to death. Over what? It was, it was so sad. So, if the authorities deem the evidence to be sufficient, which, by the way, did not take much to persuade these people to go, yep, 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 that's a witch, the accused would be formally charged with witchcraft and brought to trial. So, normally the dunking or the pricking would take place as kind of like a feeling out process. And then if they were like, okay, they floated or, oh, you know, they didn't bleed that much when we stabbed their mole. That's a witch. Let's move on to the actual trial, right? Well, there was often one step before the trial, though. What was that? The confession. Oh, see, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're talking about this in a particular order, but it was not always done in a particular order. Yeah, and it so was they, a lynch mob. Yeah, and so one of the things they would do is that during the trials that you're talking about, the torture in determining as part of the investigation whether they were a witch or not, they would torture individuals. Yeah, and time and time again, study after study has proven that physical torture and mental torture is not actually an effective way of gleaning the truth, right? And as anybody who's a fan of history can also tell you, the Spanish Inquisition was very, very good at this. Mm -hmm. People that were accused of doing heretical stuff and they were accused of witchcraft under immense physical and mental torture would admit to literally anything to get it to stop. And some of the accounts that I read about the dunking, right, it would last hours because yeah. maybe she would float, maybe she wouldn't, and they would go, well, let's do it a couple more times just to make sure. So you're essentially waterboarding these poor women. And as we know, waterboarding is a very effective form of torture. They're going to admit to anything just to make it stop. Make it stop. The spirit of the English justice system, because this was the early American colonies, so they adhered to English law. The trials were often held in public, again, to really show people we're in control, we've got the power, and again, a humiliation tactic. There was often grandstanding by the officials, too. Oh, yeah. So that they could stay in power. Mm -hmm. Usually a sermon would be preached during these trials to, again, reinforce I am the force of good. This woman is the force of evil. Let's also remind you that I am the closest one to God in this community because I'm in charge of rooting out all of the devil's <laughs> cronies. God has made me your instrument. Exactly. It was actually followed with legal procedures that were underlined mainly with English common law at the time. However, due process was often very lacking. <laughs> And the accused were frequently and quite casually denied basic rights, such as a right to legal representation or, as most often with accusations of witchcraft, the presumption of innocence. These people were guilty the moment they showed up at their door to pull them out. Yeah. Once they were taken into custody, they were, you said basic human rights, but basic human needs. Like they weren't given water or food. Mm -mm. They would be beaten just regularly while they were incarcerated oh, yeah. before the trial. And there were some instances where uh, I read where the accused, once the trial was wrapped up, they were basically looking forward to death. They wanted it to be over, which mm -hmm. is just so depressing to think about. Then we move on to the verdict. 
right? So during the trial, the accused, in some cases, not most, would be granted the opportunity to plead their case and present evidence in their defense. Usually, underneath the jeers and screams of everybody attending the so-called trial. So even if you could try to reason with these people and say, I have never flown on a broom, I've never transformed into a cat, I've never cast a curse, it's being drowned out by insults. People calling you the devil's whore and, oh, you charlatan and all this other stuff. So even if on the rare occasion that one of the accused witches able to speak, nobody even heard what they had to say anyways. They didn't care. They would often also twist the words of what the person said because they couldn't be heard. And the magistrate would turn around and say, just got a confession. Exactly. I mean, there was not really, really accurate and trustworthy stenographers in any of these court cases, quote unquote. And like me and Ed were saying, a lot of the time, these trials were predetermined in their outcome, okay? So with the accused being put underneath all of these pressures, maybe they had children, you know? There was a huge pressure on them to confess or even under extreme duress, implicate others. So let's say that you were an official who you're hanging out, you've got some modicum of power in your community, but you could use more. And Jim Bob over there has a little bit more than you. A witch hunt starts on the other side of town. That witch, quote unquote, has nothing to do with Jim Bob. But you being a savvy and dastardly son of a bitch will go, how can I tie Jim Bob into this? And then while you're torturing this woman, get her to say, what do you know about Jim Bob? Just say Jim Bob also practices witchcraft. Say Jim Bob paid you to curse one of your rivals. Me, poor little me the righteous agent of God, say Jim Bob tried to get you to curse me. And often they would do it under the extreme torture that they were seeing. And then boom, boom, you've killed two birds with one stone. You've used an innocent woman's life to advance your own position in your community and take out somebody else. And then we have the punishment. So if found guilty, and in most cases they were, the punishment for witchcraft varied depending on the severity of the accusations and the prevailing attitudes of the community. Common punishments in colonial America included imprisonment, public humiliation, like putting them in a stockade where everybody can jeer and throw things at them, you know, manure, rotten vegetables, rocks. Banishment was also a common thing. They just said, you've got to leave the community right now. Uh, But mainly... Well, which during that time probably meant death. Yeah, exactly. You know, a woman was traditionally in her role in colonial America was to be the housekeeper, you know, you cook, you clean, you know how to sew and stuff. You don't know how to forage in the woods. You don't know how to hunt. You don't really know how to fish. So if they said, that's it, you're out of our community, good luck. I mean, it was death by wilderness at that point. But mainly the execution method that was preferred at the time was execution by hanging until death. So let's talk about the very first documented person that we found accused of witchcraft and then subsequently executed for it in Salem, Massachusetts. Her name was Alice Young. She was executed in Windsor, Connecticut in 1647. Now, unfortunately, because she was a woman, historical records regarding her life and trial are pretty limited. We don't have much to go off of of what she did prior to the trials or anything like that. 
but it only comes the information that we do have from brief accounts, either newspapers or court documents at the time. The exact reason for Alice Young's uh, accusation and subsequent execution are not well documented either. Okay. She was actually born in New Windsor, Berkshire, England in 1650. And she moved to Windsor, Connecticut during the 1630s. She had a daughter, uh, Alice Young Beeman, Beeman, who was accused of witchcraft in a nearby town of Springfield, Massachusetts. Some 30 years later, fortunately for her daughter, she was not killed. And what I ended up finding, the closest thing I could find about the accusation that led to uh, the original Mother Young to being executed, there wasn't some sort of claim that she casted a curse on anybody, but there actually was an outbreak of influenza in the area, and it caused a pretty big spike in the local population being killed by the illness. So they thought, mm, must be a witch, and then they settled on Alice Young as being the person who caused it. She was hanged at the Meeting House Square in Hartford, Connecticut, to a jubilant crowd. They were so happy to see yep. this woman. On May 26, 1647. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you, you mentioned, the epidemic that was going through, part of their reasoning for killing Alice was that she had failed to prevent the deaths. Really? So that made her just evil in their minds and that she must have, she must have created the illness. <laughs> so um, she was kind of chosen at random, but most people really believe that the powers that be were really upset. Her husband had passed away. Mm -hmm. She didn't have a male heir and she had inherited all of her husband's estates, Mm. which wasn't, which wasn't small. No. So, you know, you know that story. Oh yeah. I did find another account that I thought would be interesting for the listeners to hear about. And it was the accusation of a male witch or wizard in Salem at the time. Gentleman's name was Giles Corey. And unlike most of the accused who were hanged by their neck, Corey's fate was very, very gruesome as he was pressed to death. And I'm going to say that again. He was pressed to death. Corey was an elderly farmer in the Salem village of Massachusetts, and he became embroiled in the witch hysteria when at first his wife, Martha Corey, was accused of witchcraft. And when he rose to her defense, they said, you must be a witch too. There was an interesting kind of weird legal loophole that he entered in. It still ultimately led to his death. But while Corey was sentenced to death, it was in a means to extract a confession from him. So in English common law, if a person decided to speak, even to say something as simple as, I didn't do it during the trial, he was then considered a defendant. And if you are a defendant, you can now be charged or condemned to death. So Corey decided to not speak at all at his trial. Not one single word. What this ended up doing, which is really interesting, was if he had spoke and became a defendant and found guilty and then executed, his estate and all of his belongings would be passed to the state. He had sons. And he said, I may die, but I'm not going to say anything because I don't want those sons of bitches to get one inch of my land from my family. Uh, the one accusation that I found of Giles Corey came from one of his neighbors who said, quote, I saw the apparition of Giles Corey come and afflict me, urging me to write in his book, selling my soul. 
So he continued most dreadfully to hurt me by times beating me and almost breaking my back till the day of his examination being the 19th of April. Then, also during the time of his examination, he did afflict and torture me most grievously and also several times since, urging me vehemently to write in the book of the evil Lord. I verily believe in my heart that Giles Corey is a dreadful wizard, for since he had been in prison, he or his appearance has come and most grievously tormented me in my sleep. He's historically known uh, as the only person who ever suffered from crushing or what was the term you used? Pressing. Pressing. Yeah. Uh, in in the Americas. But um, there's one place that I found some people believe that he actually cursed Salem and its sheriffs with his dying words, which evidently he whispered more weight. <laughs> um, according to the legend, many sheriffs of Salem have died or suffered from various illnesses and misfortunes since then. There's also been a rumor, you you were talking about his apparition, but after his death, people say they see the ghostly uh, figure of Giles Corey appearing in the Howard uh, Street Cemetery where he was killed. There's a plaque at that uh, cemetery now. Yeah, but they, they say he appears before any kind of disaster in the area. Really? Yeah. Just real quick for the people who want to know what the process of pressing was, um, this is what happened to Mr. Corey. He was stripped naked and placed on the ground with a heavy wooden board placed on top of him. Stones found in the local area were then piled on top of this board, gradually increasing the weight and pressure on Corey's chest. Despite the excruciating pain, Corey remained dead silent and did not enter a plea. It took two full days before Corey died. And then, right after they crushed him to death, took the board off, rolled him into a grave, buried him. But I think something that's really important to note about Giles Corey's story, and it's awesome that we're still talking about him right now, his refusal to participate in the unjust proceedings and his steadfastness in the face of absolutely brutal torture have made him a symbol of resistance and defiance against tyranny. True, true. Well, family, that's it for this episode of the Ravensville Cauldron. I'm Ed Bolden. And I'm Jacob Garner. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you like what you've heard, make sure you join us next week as we continue our look into the infamous witch hunts. Fear turned neighbor against neighbor. Accusations of witchcraft began to fly. A grim scene unfolds as the accused face their unjust fate. Innocent lives were lost. It's a grim reminder of the power of fear and the dangers of religious persecution. In a world where diversity is our strength, it's important to remember that everyone has the right to their own beliefs. And we wanted to take a moment and acknowledge the contrast between witchcraft as a religion and witchcraft as a skill or talent. Because of the mindsets behind the witch hunts, witchcraft and religion have a very complex relationship. In Christianity, witchcraft is generally viewed negatively due to the deceptive and fictitious historical associations with evil and the devil. Diversity is the tapestry that weaves us together, each thread unique yet part of the larger whole. It is the multitude of voices that make up the chorus of humanity, and is the innumerable colors that paint the canvas of our world. Diversity is not a weakness to be feared, but a strength to be celebrated. Now, family, 
You adults have a few chores to do. Go on over to ravensvale.com and see about doing your chores on social media. Follow us on all the social media platforms that we've made available just for you folks. Listen, like, subscribe, and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you don't mind, leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you folks. You can find the Ravensville Cauldron Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. If you haven't already, just search for Ravensville Cauldron Podcast. And again, make sure you hit the follow button to stay up to date with our latest episodes. Oh, and tell a friend about us, won't you? So until next time, family, see see you soon. soon. The Ravensville Cauldron is a production of Small Raven Media. Today's episode was hosted by Ed Bolden Greer with co-host Jacob A. Garner. Audio engineering and sound design by Nick Devan at Nikki D Sound. Copyrighted 2024 Small Raven Media. All rights reserved.